First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 50 through 58. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Last time I was with you, we emphasized the fact in this portion of the Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that in the Bible there are two representative heads of the human race, Adam and Jesus Christ. We are told in the scriptures that the whole human race was represented by Adam in the Garden of Eden. As Romans 5 alludes to quite well, that all of us sinned in Adam in the Garden. Now we sinned, we have sinned in Adam in two ways. First, he is what we call our, our federal head. Federal, the old word meaning representative. We were all represented in Adam. This is a principle that God has set up in the Word of God, representative headship. Uh, sometimes we might not like it uh, with reference when the one that represents us does something that negatively impacts us. But rarely do people complain about uh, something that when the representative does something that gives us great advantage, then we rejoice in that kind of representative. But we sinned in Adam because he sinned. But then there's a second way we sinned in Adam. The Bible tells us that we have inherited the sinful nature from our first parents. So we're sinners by virtue of the fact that he represented us and failed. And by virtue of the fact we're sinners because uh, we, he has passed on to successive generations that sinful nature. Therefore, that's why the Bible says we have been conceived in sin and from birth we all go astray. As 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22 tells us that in Adam all die, but in Jesus Christ all those in him live. Setting forth that principle of representation. Death entered the world as a result of Adam's transgression. Now, one of the great tragedies of life is the fact that mankind, man himself, male and female, according to the scriptures, uh, were made in the image of God. And man was made a physical creature, and a spiritual creature. God breathed into Adam the breath of life. And that which constitutes all human beings is that we are a body and a soul. They are separate, yet there is a great unity there, and they impact each other. And here's the sad thing about Adam's transgression. When he sinned, he brought upon the human race something that was, in one sense, never intended to ever happen to the human race. Man was not intended to die. 
Man was made to live forever. And so what happens is that death rips us apart at the very essence of our being. One of the things that I always try to bring out in every funeral that I officiate is that the sadness that families experience with loss of loved ones or friends is the fact we are painfully aware it wasn't intended to have been that way. It's a sad thing for a time to have to bid farewell to a loved a relative or a friend. That's the tragedy what happened when Adam sinned. Death came into the world. Death came into the whole creation because, as the scripture says in Romans 8, the whole creation groans and awaits its redemption. And so it is sad that the body and the soul for a time in the believer is ripped apart at death. One of the heresies of the early church was known as Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was based upon this Greek philosophy, pagan philosophy, that is totally unbiblical, but it's the idea that matter, that the physical matter is evil, and that the soul is good. And it was the belief of the Greek, what they were called dualists, body and soul. It was the, the belief of this pagan philosophy that... <coughs> The soul is trapped into this physical body. It is that belief that the soul is the uh, spark of divinity from what they call the all soul, the world soul. And therefore, in that sense, they're not meaning what we understand that we're made in the image of God. They're saying that every human being has a spark of divinity, is of the very essence of God. The Bible does not present that view. And so that what happens here is, and this view decimated much of the early church for centuries, still plagues us in many regards. And this Gnostic philosophy led to what was called the monastic movement, the early church, and by the monastic movement, the idea that it's more holy to go into a convent or a monastery. It's more holy to lie for real on a bed of nails so that you teach to subdue that evil body. Some people suspended themselves over a cliff in a cage for 20 years. Uh, Simon the Stylite set up on a pole for 40 years, and people came and venerated him. I don't know why they would think that's so holy, but they were viewed as more holy because they had to teach that evil body a lesson. Now, oddly, Gnosticism, in this view, led to immoralities, particularly sexual immoralities. You think, now, wait a minute, I thought they were out to subdue these passions. Well, here's what they, they thought. If the body is evil, but the soul is good, that which I do in the soul is not really tied with the body, so I can do whatever I want in the body as long as my soul is pure. Now, you think, that's kind of crazy, but that's exactly what they did and how they rationalized their sin. And it all stemmed from the fact of this unbiblical notion that the body is evil and the soul is good. No, the body is not evil. When God created Adam, what did God say? It was all very good. And the fact that we're going to see that God is going to raise the body up, and all the emphasis we see in 1 Corinthians 15 demonstrates the fact that the body is very important to God. So much so, as we're going to see, our redemption is not full in the biblical sense until the body is redeemed. 
Now, God created man a physical being. He created man a spiritual being. And the body is that important to God. Now, let's take a look at a couple passages. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 13 and 14. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is given to believers as a pledge, as an earnest. If you buy a house, you put down an earnest payment. The Holy Spirit is the earnest payment. It's God's statement that I own you. You're mine. And I will come back and get you. In Ephesus was a port city. Merchants would used to buy logs, but they couldn't transport them immediately. So they put a seal on those logs and threw them back into the harbor. And the merchant may say, in a month I'm going to come back. And what they would do, they just turn over the logs and they find that seal. And they would get their, their logs. Cowboys out west differentiated their cattle by their particular brand. But they already purchased it. It was theirs. But they haven't come back and redeemed it. God has already, in one sense, spiritually redeemed us. But that redemption is not full until that body is redeemed. Turn with me as well to Romans chapter 8. Look at verses 20 through 25. For the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we eagerly eagerly wait for it. There you have it. We have that spirit. We have been given the first fruits of that Spirit. He resides in us as Christians. And we eagerly wait for what? The redemption of our bodies. So we've been spiritually redeemed, but we're waiting for our bodies to be redeemed. And we look forward to that day. It says eagerly look forward to that glorious day of redemption of our bodies. Now, we saw in our previous message that Adam, particularly in, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 38, 38 and 39, was referred to as being earthy, while Jesus was being referred to as heavenly. Now, what does it mean when it said that Adam was earthy? And uh, essentially what it means is that after the fall, he had a corruptible body. And as a result of the fall into sin, he would return it to dust. It is a corruptible body. It will decay, decompose into dust. Now, 1 Corinthians 15.47 says that Adam is earthy because he came from the earth. What did God use to create man? It says he took the dust of the, of the ground and he formed man out of that. Literally. He didn't use evolution as someone to tell us. No, it says he took the dust and fashioned a man 
and then breathed life into this man. He is from the earth, created from the dust. Now, in other words, we are mortals. We have a corruptible body after the fall. And one day, praise God, it will give way to incorruption and immortality. The Christian, we see in our our text, look at verse 50 of our text, 1 Corinthians 15. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The Christian, as we are, as it is right now, is not fit for heaven in the fullest sense until the body is changed from corruption to incorruption. There can be no impure thing in in the new heavens and new earth. There is no non-mortal in the new heavens and new earth. No, it will be immortal. There will be no sin in the new heavens and the new earth. And a body, as it stands now, our body is infected by sin, is it not? And in, in that state, it is not fit for the heavenly realm. And we must totally be changed. As our confession of faith says, even before the day of resurrection, it alludes to the fact that when we die, your struggle against sin ceases. It says that your soul is made perfect at the moment of death. And you go to heaven. Now, at that point, your soul doesn't have a body. I don't know what it's going to be like uh, <clears throat> with a soul without a body. We don't need to speculate. But that perfect soul, one day, at the last day, will be united with a perfect body that will be changed. So that in this new heavens and new earth, there will be a perfect body with a perfect soul the very way it was created in the beginning, without the possibility of ever ceasing to be that way. Isn't that wonderful? There will be no possibility of someone failing on our behalf. It will be perfect forever, body and soul. The perishable, we are told here, must give way to the imperishable. And... As 51 tells it, verse 51 tells us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, I've mentioned to you in the past that a mystery in the Bible is something that you and I would never have come to by any kind of rationalization unless God had told us. That is a biblical mystery. Unless it's revealed by God, you would not know it. So what is it that we would not know if God had not told us? Well, here's the mystery. Verse 51. We all shall not sleep. That means we all shall not die, but we all will be changed. Now, none of us would ever have come up with that unless God had told us. That's the mystery revealed. And it says here in verse 52, what's going to transpire here? How is it that uh, not all will die? Well, verse 52 says, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. This is a radical transformation of monumental proportions. From corruptible to incorruptible. From mortality to immortality. Now, I want you to look at me very closely. This is the power of God. Now watch. Look at my eyes. That was the twinkling of an eye. It's all going to happen like that. That fast. Now you you may, in a coffin, uh, have decayed and you're all dust. You may have been blown up somewhere, like I said, eaten by some wild animal somewhere, 
but in the twinkling of an eye, God is going to raise you up with that body that looks very similar. We'll want to know it'd be thinner in the new heaven. <laughs> the thing here is, we will have a new body in the twinkling of an eye. Brethren, that's the power of God in an unbelievable way. There will be a day in human history, most all humans will die a death as we know it, but there will be a generation when Jesus comes back, who it says will be alive, and there's the mystery, and here's the rapture, according to the scriptures, that generation when Jesus comes back at that great last trumpet, those who are alive, will not precede those, it says, who are dead, but it's all within the twinkling of an eye. Those that are alive, that have bodies like you and I, will be instantly changed into incorruption. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians. This passage is a corollary passage to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. First, uh, First Thessalonians 4, verse 15 and 16. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. You're going to have the dead rising Christ first, and that has changed all within the span of a twinkling of an eye. It's all going to happen that fast. So in 1 Corinthians 15, 53, we see this immortality facing us in Christ is nothing like the the mythological gods of the Greeks. You've ever read any of the Greek uh, classics? You've seen any movies about the Greek classics? You know, one of the things about the Greek gods, they're mythological, but they are immortal, right? But in their immortal bodies, they have all kinds of sinful proclivities, right? There is revenge. There is a competition among the gods against one another. Rather, that's not anything remotely what it's like with the Christian. There is no sin. There is no competition. There's no revenge. Are you grieved with the painful reality that while not in bondage to sin... You, you and I still have sinful proclivities. The remaining vestiges of sin is there, the Scripture says. But there's good news, my friend. In the new heavens and the new earth, you won't have to worry about it. I cannot even begin to imagine going for much long period of time without sinning in some respect. You won't sin in any deed. You won't sin in any thought. It's all going to be perfect. In one sense, you and I cannot even begin to imagine what it will be like to live with an actual body, with the soul, and never, ever have a sinful thought, ever do a sinful deed, ever. How do we know it's going to be that way? Because God has told us. And then if you look at, turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, 54, Look what it says. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. The full redemption of man is seen as being complete at this point. As stated earlier, death entered this world because of Adam's transgression. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, as the scripture says is, says here, and when this mortal being puts on immortality, cannot die, then it says, 
Then will come to pass the promise, death is swallowed up in victory. At that point, redemption is complete. The body has been redeemed at last. He says, our greatest enemy, the scripture says to us, is death. It's the last enemy that will be defeated. But how wonderful this phraseology. Think about it for a moment. As I was preparing the message, I don't know if I'd sufficiently thought about the imagery. How terrible death is. The great enemy of mankind. This horrific enemy swallowed up. Can you imagine like this big mouth just coming in? Swallows it up. As if, no big deal. Death swallowed up by victory. Do you know this paraphrase, death being swallowed up in, in victory? It says that the saying that is written, that means it's something in the Old Testament that was being brought forward here. So it's always helpful to look up the Old Testament passage that the New Testament writers mention. So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah 25. And let's begin reading at verse 6. And the Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow, and refined aged wine. And on this mountain he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe tears away from all faces, and he will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited, that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we have waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. That was a prophecy, brethren, of the coming Christ and the gospel. That feast that Jesus talks about, a marriage feast of the Lamb, where all the people invited to this banquet feast, it's picturing here this great feast that God will put on for us, and will we will eat and drink to our satisfaction, as it were, in that imagery. And it says that death will be swallowed up for all time. For it goes on to say, this is the Lord whom we have waited. And, and, and so what happens is the Apostle Paul takes that great messianic prophecy, takes an aspect of that prophecy, and then brings it forward and says, on that day when Jesus comes back again, on the last day of human history, and at the last trump, at the twinkling of an eye, it says, then that prophetic promise of Isaiah will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. And that our redemption of whom the Lord brought about in the Lord Jesus will be brought to, the, to full fruition. Now, if you look back at 1 Corinthians 15, turn back there, and you look at verse 55, this has got to be one of the most thrilling verses to the Christian. It says, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? You know, in this regard, how can you read that verse or meditate on that verse and your heart not leap for joy. And how can you meditate on that passage and not have the peace of God that passes all understanding this flow over your being? Death is swallowed up in victory. There's no more victory, oh death. Where's your sting? Where's your power now? It's gone. 
forever. You see, in this regard, death and the grave are completely conquered. They're swallowed up. That's the imagery of being completely devoured, conquered, defeated. Mankind's greatest enemy at last has been defeated. At last. And on that day, I'm just going to portray an imagery. It's as if you and I as a Christian, if we could, we could look at death and say, hmm, you're nothing anymore. You mean nothing to me. You're no threat to me. You're nothing to me anymore. You see, old death, what victory do you have over me now? Where's that sting? Where's that ripping apart of the body and soul? No longer anymore. No more tears. Lost loved ones. No more pain that goes through. It's all conquered. You know, in this regard, it says there in verse 56, it follows up on this. It says, when it says, oh, death, where's your sting? Verse 56 says, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Now here we're going to see on that great glorious day, we're going to see just how it is that we, or how death is defied. The sting of death, it says, is sin. Now how so? How is it that the sting of death is sin? Well, let me ask you this. What does the Bible say in Romans 6.23? The wages of sin is what? Death. The, uh, your paycheck, as it were, that's a wage. Your paycheck for having sinned against God is death. I don't want that paycheck. Well, of course you don't. But that's the inevitability because of Adam's transgression. That's the wages of sin. And there's the sting of death. The sting of death is the fact that you and I sinned because when Adam sinned, then that brought the misery into this world. But you see, in that regard, when it says that the sting of death is sin, it also says... Look at what verse 56 continues to say. And the power of sin is what? The law. Now, how is it that the power of sin is the law? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Well, here's the reality. Turn with me. Let's turn to Romans 4.15, first of all. Romans 4.15 puts it this way. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. The law brings about wrath. You may think, well, how exactly does it do that? Well, turn over a few chapters to Romans 7. And look at verses 8 through 13, and that tells us specifically how the law produces wrath. Let's start at at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said You shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive, and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me, For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and killed me. 
But then he says, lest you think there's something bad about the law, he says in verse 12, So then the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. But here's what sin does. It takes those ten commandments that we've been studying in, in, in the Sunday school hour. It takes those ten commandments, and it says, Aha! You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. Die, 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 die. Paul says sin takes the law and magnifies, magnifies my rebellion against God. And what's the wages of sin? Death. So the the sting of death is sin, but as 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, the power of sin is the law. It is because of, that, of the fact that the law uh, produces death in us is why Galatians chapter 3 says the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. See, the whole book of Galatians is a refutation against the Judaizers who were teaching what? Salvation by works of the law. You've got to be circumcised in order to be saved with the ceremonial law. Uh, it didn't just stop there. They were trying to, as it were, prove themselves uh, with their own merit by keeping the law. And Paul says in Romans 9, the Jews who sought to pursue righteousness by the law failed. But the Gentiles who said, Look, I'm not even going to bother because I know I'm guilty. Said when the gospel was preached to them of salvation by faith in Jesus, it says they arrived at the righteousness that the Jews were trying so hard but couldn't make it. And yet these, in the minds of the Jews, those unworthy Gentiles, they get it all? Well, of course they get it all. Because they weren't trying to do it themselves. They were trusting in Jesus by faith. But the law leads us to Christ. This is why in evangelism I like to use some aspect of the Ten Commandments. And unless you use some aspect of the Ten Commandments, I don't think you're effectively driving home to sinners that what necessarily needs to be done. You see, a person, in order to be saved from their sins, they got to acknowledge they're a sinner, right? I've got to, I've got to paint a picture that's pretty bleak in themselves. I mean, that's the old time preaching of the gospel, of preaching the law of God, and people say, you know, I don't like going to that church because they make me feel so bad. Well, if you're a sinner outside of Jesus, you better feel bad. Yes, I want you to feel bad. I want you to get to the point that you say, woe is me. What what did the uh, tax collector say in that parable of Jesus? Woe is me, the sinner. And yet the Pharisee said, oh, I'm righteous. I tithe. I don't do anything. I'm better than that publican over there. And that guy's over here. Says he can't even look up because he knows he's a sinner. And what did Jesus say? The publican will go away saved, and the Pharisee will perish in his sins. See, in order to be a Christian, you've got to come to the point that you see, I cannot make it on my own. I have failed, I have failed, I have failed. And James 2.10 is a great passage because it says, For he who keeps the whole law and yet offends in how many points? One point has become guilty of what? All of the law. So all it takes is you have to blow it. I remember I've told you this before. Early on in Corpus Christi, this guy wanted to come by. We already had a Kirby vacuum cleaner we had for years, but he wanted to... Vacuum the room free in order to sell us a vacuum uh, cleaner. But I already had one. But I, I let him come in and do it. And we were talking, and uh, he found out I was a preacher. And he said, well, I need to get back to church. Well, the type of church he was 
talking about was a Romanist church, and he says, I'm trying hard. I said, hold on a second. I went back into my study. Now, I'm serious when I say this. You know where my passage was open to? James. And I came back to him and I said, now, I got some good news and I got some bad news for you. I said, the bad news is you're not going to make it on your own. I said, but I want to tell you the good news. The good news is that in Jesus, he paid it all for you. And he also made the comment he wasn't bad as some of the other people. But again, you see, the standard is not going to be how I measure up with Fred down the street or Sally down the street. No, the, the question is, how do I measure up against God himself and his law? And so you see, the, the, the power of sin is the law. Because as Paul said, sin grabs hold of that law and says, you blew it. You die. And the devil relishes in that fact. But notice what our text, verse 57, brings the good news, doesn't it? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through who? Through our own merit? No. Through the Lord Jesus Christ. How is the victory over death won? It's won in Jesus. In Jesus. In Jesus it's won. That's how it's won. Personal law keeping will only lead you to death because unless you can render to God personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, you will never make it. And you, I trust you know you will never make it on your own. That's why you need Jesus. That's why we need to preach Jesus. Jesus, by his atoning death, rendered, the Scripture says, the devil powerless, who, the Scripture says, had the power of death. I want you to turn to that great passage. Turn over to Hebrews 2. Now look at verses 14 through 17. Hebrews 2, beginning at verse 14. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. And might deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, it's important that we understand what's being taught here. How is it that Jesus renders the devil powerless through his death on Calvary's cross? Well, and it says that the devil had the power of death. How did the devil have the power of death? That Jesus' atoning death somehow rendered the devil's power of no effect anymore whatsoever. Well, here it is. <clears throat> we've already acknowledged, acknowledged, have we not, that when we break the law, we sin. And when we break the law, we sin. And what are the wages of sin? Death. And what are some of the names given to the devil in the Bible? Well, we have the name the deceiver. Uh, who did the devil deceive way back yonder? Eve. He deceived Eve into partaking of, of eating the fruit. And when, of course, she ate, she died, gave Adam, and he died. But, of course, the Bible says sin came to Adam because he's the representative head. He was the head. And so the onus is going to be on him. So the devil was there. He's the deceiver. What's another name for the devil? Uh, it says in the scriptures that he is the, the tempter. 
He tempted Eve. He tempted Peter. He's tempted you and I. What's another name for the devil? The destroyer. The devil possessed the power of death in this way. Listen very carefully. Here's how he does it. The devil can't make you sin. He cannot make you sin uh, in that sense. But the devil knows your sinful proclivities. And the devil comes to you with a temptation. And when he presents the temptation to you at a precise time, he knows the likelihood is you're going to go for it. Now turn with me to James 1 for a moment. <clears throat> James 1, look at verses 13 to 15. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. There you have it. So when the devil comes to us, and we still have the remaining effects of sin in us, and remember what Paul says, the law is there saying, don't do it, don't do it. But sin grabs hold of that commandment, and what the devil does, he comes, he knows your weakness, he presents the temptation, and when you choose to give in to the temptation, he's got you. Right? He has the power of death. Because he tempted you to sin, and when you sinned, what does the scripture say? You die. That's how he had the power of death. Because he's the great tempter. Now, in the death of Jesus Christ on the cross... Notice what Hebrews 2 brings out. Uh, it brings out the fact there in Hebrews 2 that <clears throat> Jesus, it says, <clears throat> became, gave help to the seed of Abraham, and he was made like his brethren in all things. Now, verse 14 says, he himself also partook of the same, that is, flesh and blood. Brother, this is why in the salvation of mankind, there is no other way for our salvation to take place except for the fact that the Son of God would have to, not maybe, but would have to come and take our nature and take our bodies in order to redeem us. I want you to turn to Hebrews 10 for a moment so that we appreciate this. Look at Hebrews 10 and look at verse 5 through verse 7. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says... Sacrifice and offering thou hast not desired, but a body thou hast prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifice for sin thou hast not taken, thou hast taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the role of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. It took Jesus having to take our nature, having to take a real human nature, a body, so he could do what? Shed his blood on Calvary's cross for whose transgressions? The sins of his people, the people. The word there in Hebrews 2 says the propitiation of the people. The word propitiation simply means, if you look at its four uses in the Bible, means this. It is the appeasing of divine wrath by means of a bloody substitute. God is angry with sinners all day long. God says the soul that sins must die, not maybe, must die. So Jesus comes along 
and becomes the propitiatory sacrifice. He's our substitute. And he bore on Calvary's cross our transgressions and propitiated our sins, as it were. And in so doing, he rendered the devil powerless. Because it's not up to you and me anymore. (laughs) I'm in Jesus. You're in Jesus. You're in union with Jesus by faith. And therefore, you can say to the devil, it says, what's another name of the devil, the Bible says? The accuser of the brethren. As I've told some on their deathbed. I said, you know, uh, you can look forward to this. He says, do you have any doubts? My brother-in-law said to me on his deathbed, John, do you have any doubts? I said, well, of course you can have doubts. But you just need to tell the devil to get lost. Just tell the devil to get lost. Because he paid the price. He's the propitiatory. It's not up to you anymore. You have the victory in Jesus. Thanks be to God. What does our text tell us? Thanks be to God that in Jesus we have the victory. Now, what's the application of all of this wonderful teaching about the resurrection of the body? Well, look at verse 58. gives us some application of it. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You know, with, <clears throat> this is the application. As I've mentioned to you time and time again, every biblical doctrine has its proper application. It's not just uh, to remain up here, you know, it's this intellectual thing. It's meant to be transforming in your life. So what's the transforming application of understanding that on the second coming of Jesus, we are going to be raised, uh, the, incorrupt, the corruptible will be made incorruptible, the mortal puts on immortality. What's the great application of the fact that death is swallowed up in victory and the sting of death is removed? The great application is be steadfast, immovable. We can't be shaken no matter what. That is what God wants us to realize. If this is true, it should make a real difference in how you live your life. You should be steadfast, immovable, immovable, that nobody can shake you from that confidence. Should the Christian fear persecution unto death? No. No. The reason is that physical death, what will it do? It will only usher you into the very presence of the Lord. There's nothing to fear there. You're going to have a, uh, your glorified soul will one day be united with a glorified body. So they may threaten you. Should we fear the doctor's report that we have terminal cancer? No. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You see, the whole purpose is to get you so that you don't fear. Why should we fear death? It has no power over us, ultimately. And and on that glorious day of resurrection, it will be swallowed up in victory. So it doesn't matter what happens to us. We are to be steadfast, immovable, and you see, that's what that, that imagery conveys. You can't knock yourself over. No one can knock you over. No one can uh, make you fearful and doubting anymore because you know of what awaits you. It does make a difference in how you live your life. By the way, it was that steadfastness, it was that immovable confidence that in the 1700s, on a ship sailing from England to America, John Wesley was going to the colony of Georgia, had already persuaded George Whitfield to come, but George Whitfield couldn't come yet. They were all part of this holy club, 
in England, not only John, uh, his brother Charles Wesley, uh, George Whitfield was a part of the Holy Club at Oxford, but on the way over, it was not unusual to encounter a storm. And in those days, you know, they didn't have GPS, and they didn't have the forecasters. Uh, you find yourself in a hurricane, and you wouldn't know it. Now, how would you like to be in a hurricane on a wooden ship? I tell you, <clears throat> Whitfield talked about his journeys. He made seven journeys to America. Uh, the great uh, preacher of Virginia, Samuel Davies, and I've read his account. He said I, I, he ran across a great storm in the Atlantic, and he says, I vacillated between sheer terror and then praising God, and I was back in sheer terror and repent, and then I would trust the Lord in sheer terror. He said, I resolved myself. My family would never see me again. I was going to perish at sea. I mean, it would be kind of frightening to be uh, in a hurricane in a wooden ship. Whitfield experienced it. Well, John Wesley, they came upon this great storm. And it says, in his journal, he says, I was utterly terrified, along with the rest of the crew, but there was a group of people called the Moravians who were singing a hymn during this great storm, and they were utterly calm. And when they got to Georgia, Wesley says, I just could not understand. He says, now I believed in Jesus they were believed in Jesus, but he says, it is not the same way. Now, did you know it would be at least a year and a half later that John Wesley, he was not a Christian, and that God would save him a year later when he got back to England? But it says, if you read the journals, his, his beginning point was, and he talked to a Moravian leader and says, now, I don't understand how your people can remain so calm and one of the Moravian leaders by the name of Boulder helped Wesley see it. And as Wesley talked about it, the man perceived that Wesley was all about work salvation. He says, John, you're not there. <laughs> That's the reason you don't really know Jesus yet. They had a, a calm in the midst, and fear of death didn't affect them like it did you. And, it, and he will say that was a beginning point of his conversion. You know, the terrorists succeed only because of intimidation. But a people, you can't, Joe Warcraft has said this, and I totally agree. He says you can't terrify a people who have an utter confidence in the sovereignty of God, who have no fear of death. You can't terrorize those kind of people. Well, what else does not, uh, what else stems from the fact? of knowing of what awaits us in this glorious resurrection. Well, our text says, not only will you be steadfast and immovable, but you will always be abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, in this regard, that means that everything that we do has a purpose. And as we seek to serve Christ, it gives us that confidence, and the fact that we know that there is a day awaiting us, this glorious day of resurrection, when our body and soul will be united, it motivates us to further activity for the cause of Christ. It says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It motivates us. So I could say this, could I not? If we're not as engaged in some kind of ministry as we ought to be, it could very well be that we haven't allowed the great truths of the resurrection of the body sink in enough. Because if it did, it would provide a motivation for us. In fact, the scripture says we purify ourselves when we think about that day. It motivates the Christian to persevere through all the trials of life. Because we keep reminding ourselves, there's coming a better day. There is a better day coming. There's a glorious day coming. All physical pain will be gone. All tears will be wiped away. All the emotional pain that I go through now will all be in the past. And then it says that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. You see, that confidence is that 
You hope. Remember Romans 8 says, when we realize the full redemption of our body, that we eagerly wait for that day, and therefore we hope for that day. Therefore, we not only continue to abound in the work of the Lord, but it says, it's a reminder to us that all the work that we're doing is not in vain. It's not in vain. I'll tell you, honestly, at times as minister of the gospel, there are times when it can be tiring, it can be frustrating, and one of the temptations is is to grow weary in well-doing. And you know what i got to remind myself of? Don't grow weary in well-doing. There is a greater day coming. It is worth it. It may not appear that it's worth it right there, but it is worth it. And just to remind myself... It's all going to be in the past one day. It's all going to be behind me. I don't need to worry about it anymore. You know, Galatians 6, 9 says this, and we'll end with this. It says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. This glorious doctrine of the resurrection is life-transforming. And when this great truth you fixate upon it, you think upon it regularly, it will get you through the toughest times in life. I, I promise you, because the Word of God says it will. Let us pray.